Hi, and welcome to the Good Fundraising Podcast, where we bring together nonprofit thought leaders and change makers to talk about what's good in the world of fundraising and what could be better. I'm your host, Alicia Mullenstein. Thanks for joining me today. Today, I'm joined by Jenny Bellardi, Chief Advancement Officer at Carnegie Mellon's University School of Computer Science. Over the past 15 years, she's fundraised for organizations large and small, primarily working on major gifts. Today, Jenny's giving us a bit of Major Gifts 101, as well as talking about how Major Gifts has changed right now due to current events. Jenny, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about your expertise in Major Gifts, which is an area I have admittedly little experience with. So I just appreciate speaking to people who are experts in it. Thanks again for your time. Thanks for having me. You've served in major gifts across lots of different types of nonprofits. Can you can you give us a quick overview of some of your experience? Sure. So I started actually at a very small uh, nonprofit that no longer exists about 15 years ago. I was an AmeriCorps volunteer. And then when I was done with my year of service, they took me on as a grant writer. And that was kind of my first uh, introduction to fundraising. And then I made the jump. Uh, I worked at Yale University for a while while my husband got his PhD there. And then I went back to Big Brothers Big Sisters. Uh, I worked at the national headquarters there and worked with a lot of our affiliates, which was a great experience. And then for the past eight years, I've been at Carnegie Mellon University. I'm currently the chief advancement officer in the School of Computer Science there. Excellent. And I can only imagine with uh, academia among the many nonprofits that are dealing with COVID-related things that academia seems to have had to arguably adapt the fastest and the most right now. Indeed, we have we have had to adapt, which I know we'll be talking about a little later. Yeah, definitely. And so you've got a long you know, lineage here of experience in academic institutions and some ones of significant size, too. But thinking back across all of your experience, are there some basics that you have to have for a major gifts program to be successful? Sure. I think there's sort of thought basics and staffing basics, and then there's also infrastructure. So First, on the infrastructure, it's really hard to do major gifts without some sort of designated giving. I know a lot of small nonprofits are primarily focused on raising their operating budget out of necessity. I do think if you want to have higher dollar donors, they do expect, you know, it's it's easier to get those gifts if they know exactly what they're getting. Some sort of, it doesn't have to be something tangible like space or anything that complicated, but I do think if there's some sort of program, for example, that they could fund, that tends to go a long way with a lot of major donors. And then also just having the staffing, and it doesn't have to be, you know, I work at a university, so of course we have a lot of people 100% focused on major gifts and working with their portfolios. It doesn't have to be that time or resource intensive, but even for a smaller organization, for example, someone who can designate 20% of their time to really thinking about the major donor audience, because there are some differences between raising operating funds or doing the sort of mass marketing stuff that you're more of an expert in than I am, and doing the you know step back, look at Maybe you have 20 people above whatever threshold dollar, and that will be different for every organization, of what you've determined a major gift is. You you really need someone who can think about those people as a group, but also as individuals. And what are they looking for? And what what is each individual kind of interested within their organization? Who do they want to be connected with internally in addition to you yourself as the development person? And really, how can you display the impact that they're having on the organization to them as a person, as one of your top contributors? 
Mm, so lots of individualized attention and individualized reporting back exactly. that's tailored to their specific interests. So it sounds like all of that means those major gift officers become super important in the stewardship of those relationships. So what makes a good major gift officer? Sure. So I think really the number one thing is empathy. I think once you get into working with major donors, you are thinking of that donor as an individual and you may have, you know, at a smaller organization, you may say $5,000 is a major gift and you may have 10 people supporting you at that level. But in reality, they're probably each giving for a different reason. You know, if you're a medical nonprofit, you may be working on a disease that the person has, or maybe someone in their family passed away, or they may just know about the disease and want to further research in that. And how do you treat those different audiences and that different person? I think a lot of it isn't just talking about what your organization is doing. It's listening to the person about why they got involved in the first place and why they're coming to you, as opposed to just you sending out a newsletter, which is also important, but and saying what you're doing. It's, it's why is it important to that donor? The EAB, which mostly works with higher ed and other educational institutions, has a great infographic that we will put in the show notes. It's this thing called the Curious Chameleon. And I, I'll never forget about five years ago, I was talking to a colleague at Carnegie Mellon and who is not a major gifts or even advancement. And she was asking how we hire and recruit gift officers and what we look for. And I was describing all of these things that are the Curious Chameleon. She basically printed it out for me. Someone else had told her about it. And I, I was not familiar with this. Uh, but it's based on a few different kind of attributes in a person. And my two personal favorites, which I think many of the people on my team exhibit are intellectual and social curiosity, and then behavioral flexibility. So the intellectual and social curiosity is a lot of it is about being authentic. The best gift officers I see really are authentically interested both in the organization that they're working for, because it's a lot easier to pitch something that you yourself feel passionate about. And then they're, you know, they're also interested about the people that they're meeting. So a lot of major gifts, particularly in higher ed, you are meeting with people. So my team and I fly all over the country to where our, particularly our alums reside and work. And we're meeting with them either in small groups or many times one-on-one. And to, you know, carry on a meaningful conversation with someone, it does get back to the empathy piece. And it also gets to being authentically interested in the person because you really can't fake that. And a person can tell in two seconds if you're just kind of you know, trying to get something out of them as opposed to really having a a personal connection. The other one is, again, because we're sending people out and, you know, I hire people and we'll maybe do a couple trips together, but then from there on out, I'm just sending them out into the field without me. And, you know, we get into all kinds of situations and you you have to be flexible about, you could, we work in computer science now. So, you know, we have these just brilliant people and I am not a computer scientist. That is not, not my background. And so you're definitely getting from an intellectual level over your head sometimes. All of us, I think, who have been in major gifts for a long time have had at least a few visits where you're just kind of watching the clock. And especially if you meet someone for a meal that you can't kind of just end it because it's run its course because your food hasn't even come yet. You need someone who can think on their feet and try to, you know, not be awkward or realize that it's going to be okay and you're not going to freak out in the moment because you said something wrong or you don't know the answer to a question. You need to be flexible and to be okay with being flexible, I think, is huge. Oh, that's so interesting. I'm going to go look up this curious chameleon when we're done. See, it's a great visual. Right? It is, it is a great visual. And it sounds like, I mean, a lot of those skills about being adaptable, being quick on your feet, that's something that must be even more beneficial now than ever as, you know, Major Gifts has really had to adapt to a rapidly changing environment. You know, you're not going out in the field right now with or without your officers. So, I mean, what are some ways that 
the major gift officers and the programs that you work with are adapting now? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, obviously, when I hired all the people that are on my team now, I could never have foreseen any of this two, three, four years ago. But you really see that adaptability is kind of one of the traits that I hire for when you look at how people have really just stepped up to the plate in our current circumstances where people's lives are also in flux. So you have that whole piece of it. And we need to be aware of that as, as a team, a good team member and a good boss, but also we're approaching people as individuals. And so you can't just act like business as usual when a lot of, especially a lot of our donors live in New York city and you know, as you are well aware in New York City, it's very, it's been very trying times and we can't just pretend that it's business as usual. Our fiscal year closed June 30th. We had so many conversations as I know, you know, thousands of fundraisers across the country were having. What do you do? Do you just pull your solicitations? Do you send them, but with some sort of caveat, knowing this is a hard time? And in major gifts, a lot of those are case by case decisions, which again, gets back to the needing the time to kind of think about hey, we're going to leave this person alone, or hey, we're going to talk to this person, because we do have some projects in the School of Computer Science and at Carnegie Mellon that are serving students who are disproportionately negatively impacted by everything that's going on right now, for example. So really looking at it case by case. So right, we're not traveling. That I think has been a huge struggle for some of my team who are very used to being road warriors and um, and also events. I mean, my team doesn't do a ton of large scale events that I know a lot of universities do sort of the more fancy things. We don't have a ton like that. But one thing we do have that has really gotten us a lot of traction with new prospective donors in the last two years is smaller cultivation events. And, you know, having one faculty member who's in Seattle, for example, goes to dinner and with one of us, sometimes without one of us, with six people that we recommend, or sometimes that, you know, the faculty member has relationships they want to kind of have a gift conversation with someone. So that, you know, that's been kind of lost and we've, we've had to adapt to what things do you move remote and try to just replace what you would have done in person versus what are the things that we can now do that maybe we couldn't do before. And do you have an example of one of those new kinds of events that you wouldn't have been able to do before? So I can tell you about one we did recently that we could never have done in person is we're trying to save a video collection, basically, of all these early computer science lectures. And we have a very captive audience because a lot of the alums who were there at the time, these are mostly from the 1970s and 1980s, we have a captive audience for them. And we could show in a virtual environment, we could get all of them on together, which would never happen in person because they're spread all over the country and world. And we could show the videos online. We could screen share and we could just show the videos. And it was such a great event and we never could have done it in person. So I, I think it's opened this whole creative way to do things and, and different, totally different way to think about things, not just moving stuff remote. We had a great event uh, a few weeks ago and we had all these prospective donors show up that because we weren't in San Francisco or New York or Seattle, which are the three main places we do events, we had people coming from you know Mexico and Europe and all these states that we never get to in the U.S., and you're engaging a totally different audience than maybe you would be able to otherwise. So that's been a huge bright spot for us. That last point about engaging donors who typically would have been unable or in some cases unwilling Mm -hmm. to attend these very specific regional events or certain styles of events is actually something I spoke with uh, another person about recently on taking events digitally and that it has opened up a ton of opportunity for different forms of engagement with lots of new donors and people who wouldn't have been maybe making the cut for your galas 
or your in-person talks with the program officer, now there's a chance to sort of extend that cultivation a little bit more in some cases and tap into new areas that they overlooked. So it's maybe one bright spot that's coming out of this and one that might also stick around. The events absolutely were engaging new people that we never would have before. But even things like I manage the process for a lot of our department heads and for our dean of who their priority meetings should be. So, you know, we have a sheet for New York, for example. So whenever a high ranking administrator goes to New York, who are the kind of people that my the prospective donors, my team manages that should be on this sort of a list to meet either one on one or for a drink or something like that. And now we can actually, you know, the dean is basically just like, sure, book two 30-minute Zoom calls a week. And I'll just, you know, we can actually get him in front as for one-on-one meetings in front of more prospective donors and current donors than we could have otherwise, both from the geography standpoint, but also 30 minutes of his time in a day when he's probably sitting on Zoom all day anyway, versus, hey, we need you to fly to San Francisco to see this person is a lot less of a pull on his time and prioritization. And we now have a lot of donors who I think they would have thought we were kind of nuts to suggest a Zoom meeting like that, even if it were good for the dean. And now it's kind of like, it, it's it's kind of like the meeting people where they are, where they are that we talk about so much in fundraising. And it's like the where people are right now is everybody's on Zoom. Do you think that it's going to change the way traditional major donor portfolios are set up for those officers and and even your dean higher up now that they can have more accessibility to the donors and maybe even touch more of them? Is that going to change how many donors might be in their portfolios? Yeah. So it's interesting that you asked that because I, so I've been at my current university for eight years. And when I started, our portfolios were close to 400 individuals. And, you know, this is, this is not just a, my university thing. This is an industry-wide thing. The sort of collective knowledge is that that's way too large and that pool should be smaller. And so now I carry only about a 50% pool because I also have a lot of management and other responsibilities. So I have about 75 donors assigned to me, but the gift officers who work for me, who all they do is gift officer work carry between 150 and 200. I don't want to lose all the stuff that I was talking about earlier about having the thought to really strategize on them as individuals. However, where we are, and I think a lot of universities do do it by geography. And I think even long-term, we won't feel as kind of hemmed in by that because yes, I really miss the in-person and I know a lot of us do. And those top donors are still going to get on a plane and go to San Francisco. But I think there's a whole tier of people that we never would have had one. They never would have had one-on-one time with a department head or someone like that. And now they can. I do think we'll continue to do these sort of virtual events. I think go forward two years and I can go to San Francisco again. I still think at least once a quarter, the School of Computer Science is going to be doing some sort of virtual event. So I think it won't be one or the other, but I do think major gifts will change. So do you expect that those in-person visits will then be reserved for your best of the best major donors and you'll start doing more of your prospecting through these virtual events then? I think we've talked about this a lot, you know, as I know every gift officer at every university is, I think you're still going to have to get in front of someone in person to close a first major gift and then probably for seven figure gifts. But I think a lot of in between for you know, and you could sub out those dollar amounts and make them smaller for non-university nonprofits, but maybe you need to get in front of someone and have lunch with them or a cup of coffee to get the first gift because that's where you're finding out what, why they got involved in your organization or why they want to give to your organization. 
But I think a lot of the interim work before then their maybe ultimate gift to the organization can probably be done online or over Zoom or over the phone. That makes a lot of sense. It's that initial relationship building. And so maybe in the short term, I don't know where your thinking is about leaning into the retention of those core, really reliable, loyal donors and focusing on on them versus trying to bring more prospects on. Have you looked at that balance given those considerations? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, because I do think where we will see a struggle in the next year or two is finding the next generation of major donors, because it will be hard to do that without getting in front of people. And I do think just with everything going on in the world, they may not be convinced that now is the time that they absolutely need to give to, for example, their university. I think that's a different game if your organization is basically helping people that are somehow in a broad sense, very negatively impacted by COVID and by or by these racial injustice issues that are kind of at the forefront of the national conversation where you're more higher ed for us, we have a lot of students who are impacted and we have certain programs working on them. And we're seeing more donors give to those things. And I think if your whole organization has a mission that's based around any of that, now is the time to be getting new donors. I think for a lot of organizations who maybe aren't in that boat, a lot of people who haven't been negatively impacted fiscally themselves, their own household, they're giving more money away. And I mean, I'm sure that obviously the jury is still out on whether we have the data to back that up because it hasn't been long enough. But I look at a lot of our donors and I also just look at my household and my friends and my family. And if you, you know, if someone hasn't lost a job, you feel more of a responsibility because you feel more of a sense of privilege. And I think a lot of those people are going back and giving additional gifts to the organizations that they're already supporting. So I think that speaks to your theory of, should we lean into the people who are already loyal to us and make sure they're even more loyal? Yes. I think there's absolutely something to that. Yeah. I was speaking with a guest um, not that long ago who did some donor research for North American donors, Canada versus US. And there were definitely some demographic differences. The younger donors were the ones who were coming into philanthropy now. So they were giving to explicitly COVID-related causes. But the older donors the, you know, who'd been with you for a long time, they wanted to either increase their giving or keep it at the same level. And they were also seeing a reemergence of some lapsed to donors so who had prior engagement with the organization and were coming back now. So I think you're right about that feeling of obligation, that if you have the means to do it now, you know, people want to support the causes that they still care about. So you made a good point before that it's really important in those donor relationships and stewardship to be mindful that the donor's own circumstances may have changed and now may not be the best time to go and look for that big upgrade gift. Um, <laughs> but what what is the general timeline and process for identifying a prospect and building that ask? And is that something that you think is changing now too? Yeah, that's a good question. I think in all those circumstances, someone, one of my colleagues uh, said this to me a couple years ago and it's really stuck with me, but basically you should be asking for permission to have a major gift conversation. And I think that makes the actual conversation a lot less awkward for both parties, the asker and the askee of, you know, exactly what you're getting into. You both know why you're there. If it's in, you know, in our normal world previously, you'd mostly be asking for these gifts in person. And so I think the donor in that sense can help you with the timing of when is right to have the conversation. I think you're making a judgment call of when you ask that. And we have some, you know, right now where, 
we had gift conversations ongoing and certainly all of those, my team and I have gone back and said, is this still a good time to continue this conversation? We have not in one case assumed that, yes, it's a great time to continue this conversation because we all know that so much has changed in the world. I think in terms of time, there's a variety of factors. And of course you can't know them all. You may ask for a major gift because you feel like you've done everything and cultivated this person as much as you can, but they personally, for whatever reason, may have a reason that it's not good for them, a financial reason, personal, their kids going off to college. I think going back to the designation thing we were talking about before, you can tell when someone's really excited, I think, about something that you're working on. And so in a lot of cases, so university, this is true, but this was also true when I worked at Big Brothers Big Sisters National Headquarters. We had enough different programs there that as you were updating people throughout the course of your relationship, you could kind of tell when you hit on something that hopefully aligned with some sort of, it could be personal experience, or they just thought you were addressing a really important issue. And that is, you know, that is sort of an invitation to then ask, you know, you seem really excited about this. Is this something you would consider having a larger gift discussion about, you know, now or in the future? And then, you know, kind of letting them guide you. And in terms of timeline, I mean, it's so hard. It's so individualized. I mean, higher ed also has a longer, I would say we probably have a longer timeline because you are kind of an alum for life and it can sometimes take a while to get engaged and that's fine because we as gift officers are responsible for their donor's relationship for basically their life with the university. If you're working at more of a nonprofit, you obviously want to have a shorter time from, hey, we brought this person into the organization in some meaningful way to then you're asking for a major gift. There are ways in which the current world chaos is helping the urgency issue. So do you have an urgent need? So for example, we have a couple programs that are helping students and they were already helping students. But now with the world being what it is, some of these students have even fewer advantages than they had before. So we're running through money maybe more quickly than we had anticipated. And so that is a, hey, I may have some donors that I have good relationships with. We have not talked about this particular program, but I may then go and float that program with them and just say, this is an urgent need for us and the students really need the support. And they they probably do care about students, even if they don't know about this specific program. So some of them, you know, some gifts, we work on the conversation for two years and then some are more like that last example I just gave where it's like, hey, we have a really urgent need. We have a good relationship with this person and the actual gift closes extremely quickly. So in some of those instances where you've seen a donor have excitement around a certain program or you see you're burning through money in a particular program and that's going to need more resources than were anticipated. I mean, how do you balance those donor-driven restricted wants versus the the restricted program asks that you know the organization needs you know versus everyone's dream a large unrestricted major gift <laughs> the unicorn of all fundraising gifts yeah so i will say to the unrestricted it is interesting you know as much as i started off this whole thing saying you need designated gifts probably if you want to have a major gift program i do believe that's true but i will say with the world being what it is now i think we have more of a case than ever to get general operating from people even in the larger brackets. And we're seeing that. I mean, we're seeing people even just come out and it goes back also to the loyalty thing you and I were just discussing. People who are loyal to organizations know that basically everyone is struggling. So for us right now, obviously we have no idea what fall is going to look like. What if no students show up? I don't think that will happen, but there's, you know, it's not, but not every student's going to show up. And so you have a bunch of costs. You're still going to be responsible for. And we've had people come out and give really nice gifts that they were not even asked for that are basically discretionary money for either a school or college or even the university as a whole. And 
I think they're more willing to do that now than they maybe were previously. I do think working with, you know, and again, this transfers way beyond university fundraising. So if you're in an organization, you would sit down with the program director, the executive director, whoever, and outline what are your priorities. And this is going to be a living thing. This is not like you do this once and then those are your priorities forever, of course. Having your fundraisers equipped with what the priorities are when they're having these conversations can help you drive the donor a bit so that when they say, you know, hey, I really care about equity and education. And then you're like, oh, I have the perfect thing and we need money for that. So it, it's it's about equipping the fundraisers with what are the priorities as opposed to necessarily, you're not trying to force the donors to those priorities, but I think you're, you are having the fundraisers lead with what those are so that then you're, you know, both aligning with the donor's interest and meeting a need for the organization. I mean, I have certainly seen that to be true as much as direct response needs program information for copy. That is usually the major gifts team that has the most up-to-date information, usually, not always, on what program needs are and how they're developing and what they're looking at for messaging, precisely for those reasons that you just mentioned. What about within the development department? What kind of partnerships do you most need with other areas of the development team? And then you know, aside from program, are there other areas within the organization where there are some key partnerships to making sure that you can you know, run your program the way that you need to? Sure. So I do think going back to your last comment, you're definitely onto something with the major gift officers. It's in our best interest to know what's going on within an organization, because the reality is we're the ones out on the road. Or, you know, if you're in New York working for a nonprofit, you're at those lunches or at those coffee meetings and you're getting questions. And so I, it's 100% fine to not know the answer to everything and say, oh, that's a really interesting question I'm going to get back to. I would much rather have people on my team do that than try to muddle through an answer that they don't actually know the answer. But since we're the ones getting those questions, the gift officers do tend to really kind of know their stuff about the organization. In terms of partnerships, yeah. I mean, you know, in higher ed, but I think you could definitely align this with other organizations. We do find a lot of our own prospects and then put them into our portfolios. You know, in normal times, we're, we're so, we're spending so much time on the road that there are people who spend a lot more time at their desks than necessarily the gift officers do. So we are very reliant on backend staff to either find us prospects or just drop a note from the road and say, Hey, can you look into this? I was having lunch with an alum. They mentioned this other name. I've never heard of this person. Can you look into them? And so we do work very collaboratively both across with the gift, other gift officers, but also with the other people. We, we work a lot with stewardship. I mean, you and I talked about this a little, but you're not, pro you're probably not just going to get one major gift from someone and you want to, when you get that first major gift, you want to steward it as well as you possibly can, because that makes it a lot easier to ask for the next major gift. And so even if you don't have a stewardship person, but someone who even can help you think through how to steward that, per you know, that donor uh, is huge. I think a lot of people outside of advancement can help you with that too, both the asking, the cultivating, the stewarding, really all the parts of the donor cycle. Because at the end of the day, they're not giving money to you, the fundraiser, they're giving it to the organization. And as much as the major gift officers know about the organization, they're not really the ones doing the work and kind of on the ground. And so you need, you know, in all cases, you as a fundraiser need to have relationships with the people actually doing the work. So in our case, mostly faculty members. In a lot of cases, especially with the major donors, I want that faculty member to have a relationship with my donor. And it doesn't need to be through me all the time, or I may be kind of facilitating it in the background to set them up to have lunch together, their gift is they're believing in the faculty member and the faculty members work or the students who, you know, they're funding their scholarship. They're not giving it 
because of me. And so you really do need to have, have them have relationships across you know, the organization as much as you possibly can. It's such a nice built-in advantage that you have for universities that you've got tenured professors where you know that they're probably going to be there for years and years and years. And so mm-hmm. to be able to have that connection with your donors is, you know, in a way even more lasting than those of us who have long serving program officers where there would still probably be more turnover than a tenured professor. That must be a great relationship to be able to leverage. Yeah. And they have a lot of really good relationships that, you know, if that example that I just used where I'm at lunch with someone and they mention another alum who I don't know, I, there are faculty members that I know I can immediately just drop an email to and say, Hey, do you know X person? And they'll just write you back three pages about how great that person is. And you get a lot, you get a lot of intel from them as well. That's great. I know within, you know, the other nonprofit sector, university prospect research gets held up as a real gold standard for nonprofits. Do you think that's definitely the case? Yeah. I mean, I think worked in higher ed and not higher ed, higher ed is easier in that you have a natural pipeline. I mean, that's by far the biggest difference that I found. Of course, there's sort of the size of the teams and the resources and all of that. But, you know, if someone says no, you just move along to the next person. And when I was working outside of universities, that's a lot harder because you don't have an automatic next person that you can move on to. Um, and so research for us, it's about sure being prepared for meetings or preparing deans for meetings and that sort of thing. But the number one thing, uh, that it's really helped me with is prioritizing people. So actually the school of computer science at CMU is pretty young. So our first undergrad class graduated in 1992, we've had grad programs for a lot longer than that, but you know, when I, so I took this role about four years ago and they hadn't really had much of a major gifts presence at all. Certainly nothing like the team that we have now. And it was kind of like, there were no built out portfolios that you were inheriting from another gift officer because there hadn't been gift officers. So it was kind of like, you know, here's 10,000 names and (laughs) have fun. (laughs) Um, So it was, I mean, without research, how would I ever have prioritized those people? It just would have been totally impossible. And you, and it would have been inefficient because you're just going after all and of course we're missing people or we're going after the wrong people all the time I mean there's certain things you can only gain by going to see somebody or by reaching out and getting declined when you try to get a meeting um but yeah research is they're they're amazing we could not we definitely could not do our jobs without our research team well if you were an organization that's kind of starting from scratch I mean how without those amazing resources how would you start to evaluate your donor prospects or, you know, think about your giving levels in broad strokes or there, I know we, I think we touched on a lot of them, but we're going to bring that all together for this, for recommendations. Where would you start? Yeah. I mean, I think you want a palatable size group. And so the easiest way by far to do it is gift amount. So if you have, for example, say you have 20 people that are giving at least a thousand dollars to your organization. I mean, that becomes your major gift program then go, you know, Go out, speak to them collectively as a group, speak to them collectively as individuals, kind of let them know that they're among your most, you know, sort of treasured donors and that you really couldn't do the work without them and start. I do think if you have a palatable number like that, you can start involving other people within your organization in a meaningful way you know, set up, well, especially to all the things we were talking about earlier, set up a Zoom call with a program officer or someone really into, you know, really involved in the work of your organization and have 
them do either one-on-one Zoom calls or have that, the one-on-one Zoom calls may be a little intimidating outside of higher ed as they like, why am I getting, why am I getting, you know, kicked out? Um, I would probably start by doing it with small groups. And then you will see some people are just going to be content to give you the thousand dollars and you're never going to hear from them. And that's fine too. You need those people. But I think if you give people more tailored ways to get engaged, you're going to see that the ones who start raising their hand to really get more involved. And you kind of, you, then you can kind of start working on, you know, individualized plans for those people. I mean, it sounds in some ways pretty organic yeah. and really having to go with those, again, individual donors and where they're going to lead you in a lot of ways. Yeah. And the other, like the other, um, even without running sort of huge well screenings and that type of thing, looking at if you're any sort of volunteer, if you have any sort of volunteer opportunities within your organization, there are a lot of volunteers who have never been asked for money. So they may not even be donors yet, but they may be either prospects themselves for larger gifts, or they may be very well connected. And so I would, you know, I would prioritize looking at volunteers if you're any sort of, if you have any sort of volunteer aspect to your organization as even if they themselves are not prospective major donors, they clearly are involved and invested in your work by spending time with you. And they may be able to open some doors for you to larger gifts. Well, that's really great, Jenny. Thank you for demystifying major gifts for me a little bit and for, for sharing so many of the best practices. I really appreciate it. I think we've just done the tip of the iceberg, but this is really valuable stuff. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It was great. Thanks again to Jenny Bellardi for sharing her major gift expertise with us today. You can find resources in our show notes at goodfundraising.net slash podcast, as well as all of our prior episodes. And as always, if you enjoyed today's episode, consider subscribing through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts and tell a friend. If you have an idea for an episode, send me an email at hello at goodfundraising.net. Thanks again for joining me today. Until next time, be nice and do good.